Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, y'all. This is Dr. Santosh, your amazing pediatric infectious disease and researcher. And uh, doc... I see it's an after dark episode. Is that because we're in the after darkness of space? Oh, could be. (laughs) Ground control to space pharmacist... (laughs) To join us this week, <laughs> welcome back, friend of the show and friend of us, space pharmacist Eleanor O'Rangers. Hello, hello, everybody, and happy holidays. It's been a while since we've had you on, Eleanor. What fascinating things have you been up to? Oh, gosh, yeah. When was the last time I was on? Let's see. What did I do? Well, EAA Air Venture in July. So, you know, I did my kind of aerospace stuff. I did, you know, kind of the... the natural national parky kind of thing and then the beachy thing so that's kind of what i've been up to and then you know the day job in between for those of our audience who are new to the show and haven't had a chance to meet you yet uh what are your bona fides why why do we keep consulting you whenever we go cosmic i am a clinical pharmacist by training used to work in the pharmaceutical industry but i've been consulting for the industry for a number of years now but my other alter ego i actually had a consultancy on space medicine and uh, have had a long-term interest in space medicine and physiology and space drugs. Space drugs. All right, Santosh, you ready to snort some more lunar dust? <laughs> the last time you made me do this, I had pneumonia for three weeks. So no, my uh, answer uh, uh. is no. Space pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we are back with an alternate week that is out of this world. And Santosh, you know what happens on alternate weeks. Hold on. I got to stretch up my arms. Okay, I'm up. I'm up. It's time for everybody's mm. favorite oh, yeah. journal club. Yay! Yay! Da, 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 da. 
<laughs> and this one is going to be focused on space drugs. So all of our stories are real research being carried out on drugs in space. space. So, <laughs> so let's get into the first one. Um, now, how do you do clinical trials in space? Because naturally, your sample size is going to be a little bit limited. And my favorite, and I don't know if you've been a participant or helped to design any of these studies, but it's called a personalized clinical trial, a bespoke science project, if you will. Oh, bespoke. That's a very popular term. It's an N equals one trial design. A single patient will take a medication using pre-specified outcome measures to determine a drug's safety and efficacy. Another option is the phase zero trial, which entails, and I did tell you it's a drug use episode, microdosing a medication over a short time period. And just <laughs> one week of microdosing can improve the understanding of how a body processes a drug in space. What are some of the other ways that we can study drugs in space before we get into this week's stories? When you talked about the the N of one trial, um, that actually raises the what I remember um, about more of the early days of the space program. Actually, into the er, into the space shuttle program, where NASA would actually have a a select number of medications that astronauts would actually try before a mission to see how they responded to it. Like, let's say an antihistamine, for example. Then they would benchmark that against if they actually took that drug in space, you know, how did they feel the same, better, worse. Um, and some of that has led into information that probably about 15% of the time people don't have the same response to a medication that they take in space. And there can be a number of reasons for that. Uh, but it is pretty well recognized now that uh, you may not necessarily have the same response to a medication when you're in um, a microgravity environment. So our first story is actually about manufacturing drugs in space, not just studying them. And uh, it's some passport control problems. So there is a company known as Varda Space Industries, who in true buzzword fashion is trying to provide its clients with in-space manufacturing and re-entry logistics services. So they actually developed the first kind of commercial spacecraft for this that has a satellite, a payload module that acts as the actual production facility, and a re-entry capsule. And the way that works is the spacecraft is launched into destination orbit just using you know regular commercial launching. Then the manufacturing process starts and all the products are stored in the reentry capsule. This is all done without human intervention up in space. Like you send it up there, you start the assembly line and you fill up the pill pockets. Then the satellite bus brings the spacecraft back into reentry. The capsule separates and delivers the products back to the planet's surface in a combination of like Amazon and Walmart. Walgreens. It's it's <laughs> supposed to be focused on the synthesis of small molecule drugs in space. Small molecules are most most of the medications we've traditionally taken that are. But now we talk about small molecules and then we talk about large proteins like antibodies, monoclonal antibodies that are given. So when we talk about small molecules, it really has roughly to do with the molecular size, very simply of the, you know, of the substance of the basic components of it, the molecules. 
So one of the biggest small molecule drugs that are being used are some of the HIV AIDS medications. And these are drugs that are can be very difficult or may not even be feasible to formulate on Earth. So the first test flight of Varda's manufacturing process was set to study the crystallization process of ritonavir. Now, that's a fairly well-known within the industry HIV AIDS drug. And the way they do it is companies can buy or rent space in the ISS laboratory where astronauts are already managing hundreds of experiments. You know, it's almost like a Kickstarter. For only five bucks a month, some astronaut will work on your project for five minutes a day. But this would be the very first experiment operating independently without any hands-on intervention or even humans. And protein crystals made in space form larger and more perfect crystals than those created on Earth, which could give you a more pure and therefore effective uh, ritonavir or whatever drug you're you're making. I know we're talking about it in the context of HIV, but ritonavir, even though it has some antiviral activity, it's actually used a little bit more to kind of boost the activity of other drugs. So Josh, you might know ritonavir as one half of Paxlovid, but nirmitrelivir, which is the, the antiviral against COVID, is boosted by the ritonavir. So this is actually the the um, the utility of this goes beyond HIV. It's it's a really powerful little, almost like a little engine. I, I don't know how to quite describe it, Eleanor. Almost like a a little a booster for other drugs. If I recall, with with Paxlovid, you're basically combining two drugs, two antivirals. But ritonavir, I think, actually. Um, inhibits the metabolism of the primary antiviral, basically to boost yes. its plasma concentrations. Yeah, ritonavir can do that. It it basically interferes with the liver chewing up, um, chewing up the uh, other drug, other certain other drugs. So in this yeah. case, it's actually leveraging that sort of negative aspect of of it for a positive. <laughs> so it's uh, the liver is trying to detox. And the ritonavir says, ah, oh, uh, uh, not yet. This, this, this run finished. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the first batch of this space ritonavir was made. And then Varda, of course, requested permission to re-enter and drop its payload off on Earth. And then, and then minor hiccups, because... The U.S. Air Force denied a request from Varda Space Industries to land its capsule at a Utah training area. And all right, well, fine. So you can't land at our training area. But the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration did not grant the company permission to reenter Earth's atmosphere at all. So <laughs> this, this was... Uh... You think maybe they thought to clear that before they started their mission? <laughs> I mean, they're not uniquely that this is kind of the weird thing, right, Eleanor? Uh, they're they're not unique in being a private company going to space. This is happening more and more. Uh, yeah, yes and no. But, you know, actually having these private companies launching, you know, platforms like this, I don't think it's as common as we think right now. I mean, most of the experiments that I'm aware of that are still being done in space really happened on the International Space Station. Um, so I'm not completely surprised that this poor company ran into some governmental bureaucracy 
terms so, of landing this, back on Earth. This is <laughs> this is not. Oh, you know, hey, can you turn my lights back on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is we can't figure out if our experiment worked because you won't let us in the door. So the capsule <laughs> was originally launched on June 12th of 2023. They finished the experiment June 20th, and it was just kind of floating around. It was originally scheduled <laughs> for reentry on September 5th, but the company's application was denied. And as far as I know, it's still up there. It's still orbiting. Mm-hmm. So there's, so now, there's now it's orbital debris. Yeah. So now there's a whole bunch of, so we'll see what happens with this and I'll, I'll try and track down more of their press releases as to when they are finally able to reenter the atmosphere. But it's certainly an interesting idea to directly manufacture drugs in space. And it's yeah. not the first method. Of course, you know, we've we've learned that protein crystals made in space are larger. But another advancement has been the discovery of a process called microencapsulation, which is basically you put drugs in little uh, boba balls, liquid filled biodegradable micro balloons. <laughs> that can then be Ooh. delivered to specific treatment sites. Okay. What's interesting about doing this in space is, you know, again, microgravity. So when you're mixing this, when you're doing your rent an astronaut corporation on the ISS, this allows liquids that wouldn't usually mix on Earth to combine and spontaneously form tiny bubbles surrounded by a semi-permeable outer membrane. Tiny so, bubble. <laughs> so are you familiar with microencapsulation, Eleanor, or no? I, you know, unfortunately, pharmaceutics was not one of the subjects in pharmacy school that I was absolutely enamored with. But um, I'm certainly aware of the concept, but I, I don't want to profess that I'm an expert by any way, shape or means. So... It, that's not entirely surprising because by and large, these micro bubbles, these tiny bubbles can't be formed on Earth. They have to be formed in space, then sent back to Earth to learn how to create them. And we have been developing a drug close to doing something like that since 2018. Uh, com a U.S. company, Angiex, began developing a drug that could destroy blood vessels in tumors. And the reason they studied this up in space is in a microgravity environment, blood vessels don't grow as well as they do on Earth, which means if you have a high blood vessel tumor, you can actually control how well and how quickly it grows, as well as what the drugs do to it. So you can conduct a long-term trial on a shorter time scale. You speed up development and you make the results more potent. That's interesting that um, if you actually have an anti-angiogenic effect in microgravity, maybe instead of treating people with medications like VEGF inhibitors, you just send them up into space to retard their, <laughs> the growth of their cancer. And of course, then they get, then they get exposed to, you know, ambient radiation and that can cause other secondary, secondary <laughs> issues. But, but Hey, their angiogenic driven cancer was cured. <laughs> then they just become space debris. And they just become space debris, like that poor orbiting satellite with the retonavir crystals. I love how you just, you you decided to go with you know in, instead of administering a drug etc. You just send them to space. <laughs> just, just shoot them up into space. You know, 
like shrug, you know. <laughs> Listen, if anyone knows the cost of drug development, Santosh, I'm going to trust the pharmacist. And if she says it's oh, cheaper true. to send someone into space <clears throat> than to develop a new drug. Oh, or the administration thereof. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, but, it, We might be getting to this point, yes, where the price is uh, uh, neither here nor there. But I'll tell you what, oh. Eleanor, I've got another method of space drug manufacturing that may be a little bit cheaper, although it's still definitely, I, I would guess, a few decades away from being commercially available. And that, of course, is space lettuce. Space lettuce. (laughs) There's a a lady that I have had a chance to interview on our podcast that is actually doing experiments with lunar regolith and and simulants of of regolith, which is very it was a very interesting uh, discussion that regolith is not like regular Earth soil. Oh, space soil. Are you sick of this yet? Because I'm not going to (laughs) stop. So, so uh, I'm waiting for soil and green to come up in the conversation. So astronauts might one day eat genetically modified plants to ward off disease. Researchers at UC Davis have developed a genetically modified lettuce that produces a drug to protect against bone density loss in microgravity. I hope some of you at home can appreciate how amazing that is, even in theory. Eat lettuce, protect bones in space. (laughs) It's a transgenic lettuce that expresses a fusion protein that combines parathyroid hormone, which is the hormone that helps uh, contribute to our bone breakdown and buildup, with part of a human antibody protein, which is designed to be stable in the bloodstream and allow astronauts' bodies to purify the drug from plant extracts. Oh, that's interesting. Lettuce has been grown pretty successfully in space. Problem is, you have to, how much space lettuce you're going to have to grow to know that you have a therapeutic quantity. I mean, oh, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I'm so glad you asked because the researchers introduced a gene including this PTH fusion protein. First, they did it by infecting plant cells with a species of bacteria that's used to transfer genes to plants, agrobacterium tumefaciens. That's a mouthful. Then they screened these transgenic lettuce plants for the production because they're trying to maximize how much of the drug they can produce, which leaves contain the most product and the best time to harvest them. And right now, at their current production levels, astronauts would need to eat about 380 grams, or for those of you who are not on the metric system, eight cups of lettuce daily to get a sufficient dose of the hormone with 10% bioavailability. Eight cups of lettuce a day to prevent bone loss seems like a pretty big salad. Uh, Yeah, but hey, you know, the other benefit is it keeps them regular. And, you know, this actually reminds me of another recent story in the news, not explicitly drug related, but, you know, we always like to put things in our salad like tomatoes. And I don't know if you heard about this stray tomato in in the space station. Did you hear about this? No. There's a lone tomato? (laughs) There was a lone tomato that was lost in the space station. So back in the spring, um, I can't remember that the astronaut, but he was recently, he recently returned to Earth after his his stint up on the space station. And he, I think, was the first astronaut to harvest space tomatoes, like little cherry tomatoes. And apparently he lost one of the tomatoes that he had harvested and they couldn't locate it anywhere. So they kind of were giving him 
you know, bit of a ribbing because of losing this tomato that somehow escaped <laughs> in the space station. But apparently they did recently find the tomato, although NASA did not disclose exactly <laughs> where the tomato was found, nor the condition it was in. But I think it's probably safe to say it was a space tomato raisin by this point. Attack of the cosmic tomatoes. Cosmic tomatoes. He was we deflated. Lost all of our cosmic tomatoes. Um, so yeah, so the so we've got two methods so far of drug manufacturing in space. One, of course, is our industrial method: send a factory up, make the make the drug, and send it back down or administer. This is a little bit more of a transgenic one, where you genetically modified plants that include drugs. And all of these are designed so we can have even longer term space flights and missions. Most drugs like aspirin are produced chemically, but we are starting to see just more biological drugs that are making their way to the market, both on Earth and in space. Most of these drugs on Earth are produced in, this is a, this is a very nice way of saying animals, but bioreactors. And it's hamster ovary cells, or instead of permanently modifying a plant DNA, you just give it temporary instructions. Produce this desired molecule for this long, this many divisions, and then go back to what you were doing. So actually, I just want to just to make a small correction. So you're absolutely right that we have these genetically modified mice or microbes that can be programmed to produce therapeutic proteins. You know, like one example is called the like Regeneron has something called a Velocimouse. Amgen has something called a Xenomouse. <laughs> I love I love the names. But the bioreactors are not the the animals. The animals or the or the microbes are used to produce the um, antibodies, for example. And then those bioreactors are kind of like big cookers to kind of like make more of the uh, produced protein, basically to scale up the small amount of protein that's produced by the the mice or the um, microbes. Okay, so you take your Velocimouse, good superhero name, yes, and feed it into a bioreactor and scale up how much of those cells you're producing. Well, you take what the you take the antibodies that are produced and then basically scale them up in the bioreactor. You don't you don't you don't have to feed Velocimouse to the bioreactor. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you take a little bit of blood. What she's saying is isolate the antibody you want, and then that goes into the bioreactor. Yeah. And yeah. the key advantage of this is that these bioreactors are incredibly rapid. You can start producing large-scale antibodies within four weeks. And this has been used as early back as 2014 to treat uh, outbreaks of Ebola. It's also used to produce seasonal flu vaccines, as we talked about in our most recent influenza special. Mm -hmm. Santosh, here's the one yeah. that you're going to find most fascinating. So we've um, tried industrial. We've tried feeding astronauts. What if we made the astronauts the drug factory and tasked their <laughs> oh. gut to make drugs? Ooh. Oh, you're going you're gonna to brew it up using their microbiome, are you? So yeah, I like that. Well, so NASA microbiome Na yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> so NASA has tasked Baylor College of Medicine-Based Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or Trish, 
to find new approaches and technologies for the challenges of deep space missions. And the reason behind all Trish. these things were Trish, the... make the drugs. Trish. Trish, get out there, do it. Trish. <laughs> and that's Sorry. because a lot of medicines tend to expire after about three years, which is not practical for long deep space missions. You can't just run out to your local Rite Aid when you are halfway past Mars. Yeah, space aid. So the astronauts have to be able to self-sufficiently and easily produce pharma products for administration within a 24 to 48 hour period. So one of the Trish-funded just-in-time medicine projects involves a gastric resident device called the Mother Machine. And I'm looking forward to the horror movies we're going to see about this. You mean mother as in like that fuzzy stuff in vinegar? Yep. (laughs) Okay, all right. So the Mother Machine... The mother machine is a non-bulky drug delivery device that is ingested by the astronauts in the same manner as an oral drug, then resides in their stomach for a specified period and gradually releases the drug it manufactures into their body. So you basically swallow the factory (laughs) instead of sending it up into orbit. You swallow it, and then you send the astronaut and the factory into orbit together. Now... (laughs) The proof now, how of, is this little factory doing its thing? So the proof of concept is involved using common microbiome bacterium, such as E. coli, which is currently used to manufacture insulin and other biologics. And they're doing it to produce a total of three medications, caffeine, melatonin, and acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. So these are all over-the-counter <laughs> medications. They're all used to treat conditions such as headaches or minor pains, as well as sleep disorders. And you basically feed the astronaut a combination synthetic nanocapsule and bacterium that has been trained to produce these drugs. And then you, uh, and then you give it to them, and then you just check their caffeine, melatonin, or Tylenol levels, all of which you can easily assay. That's really smart. Yeah, that's I, interesting. I love this. <laughs> so imagine that you're imagine you're up on the space station and you get a headache. Now, Tylenol, you know, if you left on your mission 4 years ago, all the Tylenol on station is expired. But you go grab a tiny little nanocapsule, nanocapsule filled with, you know, this micro encapsulation liquid that's largely just E. coli or other bacteria. And you say, I'll take the Tylenol E. coli, or I'll take the melatonin E. coli. And you swallow this little bacterial capsule, and it starts producing that acetaminophen. It starts producing Tylenol for you. And then your body eventually clears the infection, which is the foreign bacteria, and you therefore stop producing the drug. This is this this is the stuff of science fiction. Wow, yeah, this is really interesting. <laughs> the neat thing about this is, you know, a, a lot like Velcro. You know, this is being developed for, you know, astronauts on the ISS or long space missions or anything. But this is well applicable to you know stuff on Earth. Yeah, this is quite fascinating. Although I'm like, hey, if you're going to be like fermenting Tylenol and caffeine, <laughs> where, why are you bothering with that? Just ferment beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you have to have, to have the, the hangover. Uh, 
You need the hangover place and cure first, Eleanor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you want them to have the what's the that auto brew auto brewery syndrome. Auto brewery syndrome. Do you remember? Oh, that you can one, make Josh? yourself. Dr- yeah, yeah. You make yourself. Drunk. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one of those errors of metabolism. <laughs> Although- no, no. It's 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 the right combination of gut bacteria and everything that. Like you eat bread or something like that, and it starts making alcohol in in your oh. gut. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So you can get drunk just standing there. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So those are kind of our three major ways of producing drugs. But now how do we make the drugs that we have produced last longer? If they're not being developed by the mother machine, one other area that researchers are looking at is a protective coating. Now, this could help combat sort of the degradation, that three-year shelf life with bio-based coatings. And a team at Tufts University is investigating whether a thin layer of silk applied to medicine could act as a protective shield from exposure to environmental extremes such as space radiation. So you gently wrap your pills in silk, which could even come from, I don't know, maybe <laughs> spider goats. <laughs> well, you know, they, sounds... took, they took spiders up in space on Skylab, so why not take silkworms up there and spin, spin oh, yeah, silk spin, for your, for your Tylenol? Now I that like we've it. talked about some of the newest ways being developed to manufacture medications in space, which I hope I gave you guys a few surprises, I will include links to some of this research, such as it is in the show notes, although a lot of it's proprietary and therefore heavily redacted or limited uh, in what was there for me to review. But let's spend the back half of the episode actually talking about the medications most commonly used by astronauts. And we'll be able to get into a little history here, which, of course. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This is uh, your specialty, Eleanor, along with the actual drugs. So mm-hmm. if you guys had to guess, what's the most common medication used by astronauts of all nationalities? Well, you know, I, I think it, it varies a little bit by the the time of your, the, the timing when you get into space. Like, for example, early on, 
astronauts because of motion sickness may be taking meds, you know, anti-emetic medications. But one of the most common things that people have problems with up in space is uh, insomnia, sleep disturbances. So sleep oh. meds are another very common med that are that are used and I would even suggest maybe being overused at times uh, in space. And that that's actually been documented um, with some pretty well-conducted studies. Yeah, there was one 10-year-long oh. study that 75% of International Space Station and Shuttle crew members reported taking hypnotic sleep aids in space. Of the ones who reported they took it, the frequency of use was 52% of all nights. So every other night, you're taking a drug. Um, the average duration of sleep is only six hours a day, even though NASA allows eight and a half hours of downtime. So they've tried a couple things like rhythmic light panels to reset circadian rhythms that could change light intensity and wavelengths. They've tried red tinted lights for night, shorter wavelengths of high light intensity for the morning, as well as a few others. But despite that, everybody's still just chronically tired. You know, you can't sleep. There's too much space. <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, I think there's also multiple other contributing issues to that. Obviously, you're seeing, you know, you're witnessing the sun rising and setting every 45 minutes. So I think your circadian rhythm inherently is going to get messed up. You've got a lot of ambient noise up there. And another issue is uh, ambient CO2 levels. Um, on shuttle, this was a problem. It's still a problem, I believe, on the space station where they have higher, you know, the, the partial pressure of CO2 is definitely higher um, than what you experience here on Earth. And that can cause headaches and um you know, that certainly can, I believe, disrupt sleep as well. So that's been another issue, too. So basically, maybe better environmental controls would help with with some of the sleep sleep hygiene problems that they have up there. Nowadays, we have a fairly comprehensive medical readiness kit. And the SOMS consists of two separate packages. So when mission or when space launches are conducted nowadays, there is the MBK, Medications and Bandage Kit. Bandage, not bandages, just one bandage. Only one person it's gets to be one. injured. And the EMK, or Emergency Medical Kit. So the MBK contains capsule medications, tablets, capsules, suppositories, bandage, and topical medication. Whereas the EMK is all the injections and knives and sharp things for minor surgeries, microbiologic testing, and diagnostic therapeutic items. That's where we've gotten to now, but the journey to create this space medical kit is a long and interesting one and started all the way back as far as, was, was Mercury or Apollo first, Eleanor? Uh, Mer Mercury. Okay, so Mercury, you just had basically a very basic kit that would be sim not dissimilar to what you'd see in the Army. Just some auto-injectors, syringes that were designed to deliver a single dose of medicine. And the first four Mercury missions, the drugs that could be delivered were, as you noted, an anti-motion sickness medication, a stimulant, and a vasoconstrictor for shock. Uh and that was it. Those were the only drugs yeah. that... They only had like three or four things up there. Yeah. So if you weren't, you know, nauseous, 
sleepy or in shock, you couldn't be helped. Then the Gemini uh, 7? 6? I think 7 was to determine if humans could live in space for at least two weeks. That was 7, yep. Okay. Yep. And for this reason, the medical kit was increased with 10 new medications. So we're moving beyond just motion sickness uh, to all the other things that can happen on a two-week road trip, which includes upper respiratory congestion, diarrhea, fever, and pain. So how did they keep track of how the astronauts were generally feeling? They had a, this is pretty cool. Eleanor, do you want to tell us about the bio belt? Yeah, the first thing that popped into my head was poor Frank Borman had to have an, an electrode, like, basically stuck into his scalp during during Gemini 7. So, yeah, they were basically human guinea pigs for 14 days up there, him and Jim Lovell. Um, but, uh, no, tell me about the bio belt. I mean, I mean, they, they certainly had telemetry. Um, and actually, another little fun fact. Uh, on Apollo, when they had their biomedical sensors, those were actually um, attached to a radio carrier wave. And those devices were actually developed by RCA uh, in Camden, New Jersey. So the, the bio belt from the Gemini missions was worn under the spacesuit. And like you said, it was basically just telemetry. It could provide a nonstop reading of EKG, which is your heart rhythms, your breath, your body temperature, to medical personnel on the ground. But during the Apollo, pro- and that was just to see if humans could live in space. But the Apollo program, the priority shifted to ensure the return of the crew safely back to Earth, which... I find a little fascinating and disturbing that we didn't shift our priority to returning the crew to Earth till several projects in. We already went through Mercury and Gemini, and they're like, oh, maybe we should start thinking about bringing them back, you guys. Too much space debris. (laughs) Well, I think think part of that was, you know, Apollo was was a translunar, you know, translunar. So I think that's why they talk about returning people safely to Earth. I mean... The other two missions, Mercury and Gemini, were Earth orbit missions. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a return to Earth component to that, but <laughs> I think I think the the magnitude of return to Earth is a little different between being, you know, a couple hundred miles above the Earth versus like you know two hundred and fifty thousand miles away. Hey, you you guys think they're planning on bringing us back? Well, why wouldn't they? Well, it says. That's what they're shifting their focus to for the next mission. So, <laughs> wow, what a relief! Right? You know, it's just that's that's the water cooler talk around the ISS. Did you hey, know they you weren't know, planning we, on bringing us back? No, I had. Well, they heard. weren't. They weren't because they had to beat the Russians. <laughs> so yeah, the bio belt oh, gotcha. was the bio belt could never be taken off. It was meant to be worn nonstop, and any time an astronaut did anything biological, the ground crew needed to know about it. Um. They shifted those priorities during Apollo. They're like, well, we're bringing them back. They can just tell us. So after each manned mission or after each mission, the content of the medical kit was reviewed and modified. So even though the basic kit remained the same, there was no standard quit. There was no standard kit. So there were a few uncommon medications and diagnostic equipment. Uh, You know what? One of the funniest although it should have been obvious problems was the packaging on the medications. You ever tried to open a childproof bottle on earth 
Well, now imagine <laughs> some of the pressure-related problems in medication packaging in space. Yeah, everything goes all the heck over the place. All the pills go all over the cabin. Yeah, so the pills had to be individually packaged, but with, in a vacuum, packages seal up tighter. Think about vacuum sealing. Well, you're going into the biggest vacuum of all. So the issue was solved by just puncturing every unit dose medication with a small pin, breaking the manufacturer's warranty, but restoring the pressure equalization. And later, they got rid of spray bottles to administer medication in favor of dropper bottles. How do you think dropper bottles, like eye drops, worked out in microgravity conditions, Eleanor? Actually, oh actually, they would work out pretty well, believe it or not, because surface tension becomes more of a predominant force up in space. So you can actually develop a droplet, you know, on the end on the end of that dropper bottle and then carefully I guess you'd have to carefully touch that to the eye to get it to, to go in. So actually it's not as not impossible uh to do that. The problem with like the aerosols, um, and they did experiments with this, is that, you know, you have um it has to do with the dispersion of the propellants and the and the drug in the in the actual canister, I think, that can be a challenge in microgravity. Well, they have managed to since solve those problems, and spray bottles have been reintroduced in the last two missions to the medical kits. Now, if yeah. you remember back to Skylab, Skylab was a pretty fascinating one because it was the first that was provided with an in-flight medical support system that not only had equipment and kits with over 1,300 different items, quite a big jump from 10, but for the first time ever, a dental kit. So now I'm yes. picturing a whole bunch of toothless astronauts with terrible gums. How, wait, they, how long did it take yeah. for them to pack a dental kit? Well, and they actually, as I've been told, they received quite a lot of training on, um, on dental repair. That was the whole thing. Like if they broke a tooth. That was the, the big concern. But they received quite a lot of training on, on dental repair, believe it or not. There's a famous picture of Joe Kerwin and um, Pete Conrad, uh, actually, with uh, Joe Kerwin upside down while I think Pete's doing an examination, a dental examination. So the, the in-flight support system had a manual with line drawings that are beautifully, you know, almost calligraphy handcrafted of the complete intraoral radiographs of every crew member as well as integrated diagnostic and treatment procedures that again were personalized to the crew member if you know bob johnson breaks his tooth here's how you repair his versus if john smith breaks his you want to take this approach now this kit weighed 50 kilograms and was meant to provide the onboard medical officer with enough to make a diagnostic assessment of those injuries or illnesses most likely to occur in a station environment, uh, as well as supporting the science performed aboard Skylab. So this is the first time that we really sent a medical officer up uh, with that explicit purpose, whereas the rest, like, oh, okay, you know, if your astronauts all got some basic first aid and medical training, but there was not a medical astronaut per se. True. Yeah. Skylab was was quite a groundbreaking um a groundbreaking program that I don't think gets half the amount of attention that it deserves. And, you know, this year is the 50th anniversary of Skylab that we just celebrated in May. So 
I know I'm I am moving past some of these historical moments at a rocket's pace, but Eleanor, you host <laughs> you host a podcast on space history and and achievements, or at least you used to. I don't know if you still are. Uh, where could our audience listen if they wanted to know more about the cosmic rather than just the medical side of things? Space 3D is the name of the podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus just due to some availability of the of the co-hosts uh, the past couple of months. But uh, we have five seasons that are up actually on any of the you know major podcast platforms. And actually, the first season we devoted to space medicine. So uh, we covered basically the the spectrum of and the history of space medicine you know definitely give that first season a listen but the subsequent seasons we we branched out you know in that 3d vision to uh talk about other various um various topics uh some entertainment some more you know scientific like the i mentioned about interviewing uh the lady who's doing experiments with with lunar regolith and simulants uh we interviewed her and um and her dad who is involved in some of that research um, so yeah, definitely, definitely give that a listen. But again, Space 3D, and it's on most major pot- podcast platforms. And links to that will also be in the show notes. So Skylab introduced the space medical officer, but with the advent of the space shuttle era, every mission had a trained physician or medic on board, and therefore medical research. So even though the shuttle could turn around and come back to Earth in case of serious emergencies... It got medical kits so that it wouldn't have to, and that's where you got the SOMS, or Shuttle Orbiter Medical System, which could provide enough support for injuries for up to seven crew members from one to two weeks, as well as stabilize severely injured or ill crew members until their return to Earth. Uh, No liquid nitrogen cryogenic capsules, but still some pretty advanced stuff. Yeah, no body bags. Well, that's not entirely true. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff them in their astronaut in the EVA suit. So the space station now does have supplies of hydrocodone instead of meperidine, so Vicodin, uh, Ativan, which is used to relieve anxiety and insomnia, and Modafinil, a stimulant used to treat excessive sleepiness and shift work sleep disorder. All of these substances are, of course, for medical use only, but how to maintain them on long-term space missions has raised a couple possibilities that may interest, shall we say, recreational. And that's, of course, uh, Apollo's astronauts had dextroamphetamine, demerol, and scopolamine, but at high doses, scopolamine can induce delirium-like hallucinations, amnesia, and hyperactivity. So... We'll have to see, you know, what the drugs of abuse are in space. But a 2017 study of drug consumption on the ISS showed that each crew member took, on average, four medicines per week, usually sleep aids. And after that, the next most common were decongestants and then analgesics. Yeah, I could tell you just real quick about uh, scopolamine. Scopolamine, I don't believe, is flown any longer. Um, back... Uh, dextrin and scopolamine or scope dex were used in combination to treat motion sickness. That was a, that was a very early solution coming from the, you know, aeromedical flight surgeons from the air force. Um, and that, that was flown for a long time. 
um, but was was eventually phased out. Um, and now promethazine is what's used predominantly to treat motion sickness. They used to have, uh, I think, for a while on shuttle, they were they were utilizing the the patch, you know, the scopolamine patch. Um, but my understanding is, I think one time there was, uh, I think, one of e- either a pilot or co-pilot that had a patch, and um, I think had applied the patch and then rubbed his eye. And his eye, his uh, pupil dilated in, the, in that one eye, and they ended up having to delay the flight because they had to rule out that he didn't have some sort of medical event. When it turned out, it was just you know rubbing his eye and and causing a it was a adverse reaction from the the medication. Well, listen to this one about decongestants, and I, I wonder if you know this story that about fifteen hours into the Apollo Seven mission. Commander Walter Shearer had basically a head cold. So, of course, yep. within about 20 minutes, all three astronauts were sick. Now, mucus collected in their heads without any gravity to weigh it down. So that is going to make the astronauts extremely uncomfortable, just giant sinus boogers. Um, and how uncomfortable was it? They refused to wear their helmets during landing. Uh, because they were concerned that as severe as their head colds were, the change in pressure as they entered Earth's atmosphere would damage their sinuses or explode their eardrums. They thought there was enough mucus to quite literally blow out their ears and make them deaf if they kept their helmets on. Well, there's also a little bit more drama to that story. So Wally Shara, the commander, this was his final mission. So, you know, Shiraz a legend. He had flown Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. So this was his final mission. So there was a little bit of also, I don't really care because this is my last mission, so I'm going to do what I want to do. And Wally, like many of the early Mercury astronauts, also always had a bit of headbutting with the flight surgeons, as well as mission control, because as fighter pilots originally, they're trained to be basically autonomous in the cockpit. And it was somewhat annoying for these guys to have to be basically told what to do by mission control, because in contrast, mission control felt particularly Chris Kraft, who was the head of mission control was like, look, these are my missions and you're doing my bidding. You know, you're not the one that's making independent decisions. And there was a a fair amount of arguing back and forth between Wally and mission control. Plus the fact that he wasn't feeling well because of his nasal congestion didn't help matters. But the issue that you spoke about, about not wearing the helmets, that was sort of a a final sort of, you know, screw you mission control. We're not, not putting our helmet on. I think the two other um, astronauts were going to put their helmets on, but Wally, because he refused to put it on, uh, the other two didn't. And also, consequently, they kind of, um, you know, when they when Apollo 7 returned to Earth, um, the other two astronauts never flew again. They were basically mission controller. Chris Kraft was like, you know, you guys disobeyed me and you're not flying again. So a little, little bit of space drama on top of uh, space space boogers. Man, office politics are just brutal no matter where you are. (laughs) Exactly. One of the most common astronaut illnesses, and and we've covered this a couple times in the past, um, 
when you are in microgravity, your body fluids are going to redistribute. And usually we have gravity pulling it down to the legs. That's why when you have somebody with, say, heart failure, the legs get swollen first and then eventually moves to the lungs where you have difficulty breathing. But in space, fluid redistributes you because it goes to the upper parts of the anatomy which the cardiovascular system will then compensate by increasing red blood cell levels. Uh, now, if they're making more and more red blood cells, this is going to limit fluid production and going to increase urination. And you get what's known as space adaptation syndrome. It's like a motion sickness that also alters the GI system. So what happens when you lose all this fluid volume because you're not constantly circulating it through gravity? First off, you're losing about 22% of your blood volume. So a full fifth of the blood circulating in your body is just gone. There's, there's no need for it. This in and of itself could just be incidentally and academically interesting, but because the heart has less blood to pump, it gets lazy and begins to atrophy. This then gives you lower blood pressure because the heart's not working as hard, and that gives you dizziness from that low blood pressure or orthostatic tolerance because the body can't send enough oxygen to the brain without fainting or becoming dizzy. All this because gravity is simply not there to force your body to work. So, Well, they don't have dizziness while they're in space. Um, that's more of a, or, the orthostatic intolerance is when they return to gravity. So you're, you're building up all these top-heavy astronauts who are floating exactly. around without a care in the world. And then the second they hit the ground. Uh, so does they, that fluid. <laughs> yeah. And it causes heart failure because you now have a heart that's gotten lazy and can't pump as well. You have vision problems because the fluid in your eyes has also redistributed and dehydrated a bit. So you have blindness, you have heart failure. Um, you have orthostatic intolerance, you have problems that we see in a lot of our earthbound elderly population. And this has led to studies, although I don't think any have been carried out outside of fictional Hollywood films, of making a generation of astronauts the elderly uh, and sending them on, you know, if not one-way missions, certainly ones where these are people who have already made the adaptations on Earth for the common things that happen in space. Yeah, well, um, you know, we flew John Glenn, and he still holds the record as the oldest astronaut. He did very well uh, on his flight. Um, I think there's been some speculation that, <clears throat> that elderly or older individuals, you know, they don't have as much arterial compliance anymore. So they may actually tolerate these, or, these uh, orthostatic changes a little bit better than a younger astronaut. And they've definitely seen that with centrifuge uh, experiments where younger uh, spaceflight participants, you know, that have been spun around in a centrifuge <clears throat> may actually develop gray out to a higher percentage than those that are older, interestingly enough. So maybe this is the one instance where if you're older, it's an advantage in terms of uh, flying in space. You must be this old to leave the planet. <laughs> exactly. The other thing I want to mention too about, just to follow up on, on eyesight. So there is a unique issue in space that is called, well, there have been a number of names for it. I think now the, the acronym is called SANS, but essentially what occurs is the longer you're in space, there, there can be pressure changes that occur in the eye and they don't have all of the physiology worked out, but there may be something having to do with 
circulation of cerebrospinal fluid that could be at play. And there may be, uh, and there may be other things with perhaps with brain swelling, but you can actually induce um, pressure changes in the back of the eye that may actually uh, restrict the um, uh, restrict the, the retinal nerve. And you can actually get these uh, eye changes over time. In fact, the on the space station, there are a whole collection of eyeglasses up there that people and inevitably end up uh, having to utilize so they can see better when they're in space, the longer they're in space, space bifocals, space hmm. cheaters. <laughs> um, in addition to the eye and heart changes, as well as the orthostatics, another reason that the elderly are already perhaps a little bit better adapted and problems you see with modern day astronauts, your brain shrinks. Now, this has nothing to do with your intelligence. This is Many of the astronauts' brains had, while in space, become repositioned inside their skulls, floating higher than before. As well, the space between certain brain regions appeared to have shrunk, and these changes were more common in astronauts who took longer, strip in, who took longer trips into space. Again, as we age, you do lose some of the folds of the brain. You have what's known as microvascular changes. So some of the smaller vessels may constrict, you lose fluid, and your brain just becomes a little bit more compact. So just by taking longer trips into space, astronaut brains became more, uh, more physiologically equivalent in appearance to geriatric brains. Going into space makes your brain old. Yeah, I think there's also some suggestion that... Um exposure to radiation may actually induce some of these changes as well, which is a little scary. So if we ever want to eventually leave our solar system or even just try and colonize other planets within it, we're going to need some new drug manufacturing and some older astronauts. And hopefully this journal club took you through them. I think those are kind of the, some of the major ones. I'm really intrigued about swallowing that capsule and, Having a E. coli produce my Tylenol dose, right? That's that, that I think is more. my absolute favorite of yeah. of this journal and, club. Well, I, my favorite part is that they found the tomato. <laughs> they won't reveal where they found the tomato or what condition the tomato was in, but they found the tomato. That'd be that'd be a nice accompaniment with my space lettuce of eight cups a day. <laughs> exactly. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Also, we're on TikTok now, so you can see us oh, uh -oh. visually. <laughs> and you get even shorter snippets of the same kind of stuff we're doing here. Um, special thanks, as always, to Eleanor for lending her outer space knowledge and pharmaceutical abilities to fact checking. Um, the show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is by Rachel leisure. And until next time, as always keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, spin a globe, pick a place when you've decided where to go, forget all that and head straight into space. <laughs> <laughs> with some of these new drugs and until next time as always happy travels
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 